Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Hey, Firsties, we wanted to jump on real quick before we start today's episode to let you know that Billy will be stepping away from the first degree. This episode was pre-recorded, but Alexis and I will be moving forward, bringing you two regular episodes a week, plus your usual Patreon content. Thanks. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. They just left the scene. They just walked away from it. They didn't try to hide it. They didn't try to clean up. They just drove away. It's just horrifying. Those are somebody's children. You know, those are brothers and sisters and friends. And they were just executed so coldly and left there. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. Today is part two of a two-part story. So if you haven't listened to part one, you're going to be so fucking confused about what we're talking about. It's very complicated. So go back and listen to part one, and then you have yourself a little uh, podcast series to binge. So before we get into it, um, I do want to tell everybody to join our Patreon. If you haven't, we have so much fun bonus content in there, and I think that's it. Any other housekeeping we have? I don't think so. Nope. I think that's it. All right. Well, what day is it today, Billy? All right. It's the 29th of June. Not much looking here, but it is National Parchment Day. Parchment? Like parchment paper? Yes. I know it's boring, but I remember making parchment in school. Like they actually had us do that. I don't understand why, but I remember doing that. Is it where you just tea stain some paper and call it parchment paper? No, no. We actually made the paper out of pulp oh. and stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's paper mache. <laughs> no, it's not paper mache. It's papier mache. And it's National Camera Day, too. I am actually, I'm buying myself a cheap film camera to bring with me. I'm going to Europe and I'm going to start taking some film pictures. I love that for you. Yeah, That's you can get like a really cheap plastic Kodak camera for like 25 bucks. I think I'm mm-hmm. going to do it. I think you should bring it back old school. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love camera day. All right. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. Cause this could be you. Last 
episode, we left off with the death of 24-year-old and pregnant Deirdre Agigi. On July 17th of 2011, her husband Isaac allegedly found her lying unresponsive on the couch. And this was at the house on the base where they lived. And once he found Deirdre, he called 911 and medical personnel worked for an hour to try to revive her. But they were unsuccessful. So following his wife's untimely death, Isaac told everyone that her autopsy showed Deirdre had died from a blood clot. And the assumption was that this blood clot was caused by an embolism that she suffered while she was deployed in Iraq. Remember, a mortar attack struck near the camp Deirdre was stationed at. So two days after Deirdre tragically died, her husband Isaac filed for spousal death benefits. And within a few days, he received $100,000 from the army to cover expenses such as her funeral. But that's not where the payouts ended because Deirdre also had life insurance worth upwards of $400,000, which Isaac cashed in on right away. And while Isaac was going through this tragedy, he kept in close contact with his childhood friend, as well as former romantic interest, Louisa, who was still living in Washington where they grew up. Louisa, if you don't remember, is our first degree from last week, and she's still with us today to carry us through part two of this story. As a reminder, the setting for this leg of the story is Georgia. Isaac was living on Fort Stewart Base, a revolving door of soldiers leaving for and coming back from war. Following Deirdre's death, Isaac continued to work as an intelligence analyst in the 4th Infantry Brigade Combat Team of the Army's 3rd Infantry Division. Right, so a few months after Deirdre's death, Isaac went back to Washington State to visit his family. He called Louisa immediately, and they went to dinner to catch up in person. It did not go to plan. It was painfully obvious that Isaac had changed a lot since Deirdre died. Louisa remembers the encounter in detail. We're just talking. It was really awkward. It was really weird. I was like, this guy is not the same Isaac I knew before. He seemed just really different. It was hard to relate to him. The things he was talking about, like like his his entire perspective on life, his interests, everything had shifted. And he looked a little scary. Like I remember his eyes just being like, there is something different like behind your eyes. It was awkward. I kept feeling like I had to fill these like awkward silences. And so it wasn't just like catching up and having dinner with a friend. Louisa probably could have explained away Isaac's change in behavior as grief. But then he made an admission to her that made her think something else was going on. Something much more sinister. He shared with her how he'd been spending all the money he received on the heels of his young wife's untimely death. So he went to a gun store that was in Wenatchee, and he spent tens of thousands of dollars on guns and weapons and ammunition and gear and he was very proud of it. And he said that he had them in a storage locker in Wenatchee, like in the area. And he asked if I wanted to see them. I said, I'm all right, thanks. So understandably, Louisa was freaked out by Isaac's stockpile of weapons. Sitting across from a man she no longer recognized, she was more and more uncomfortable. I was just like, what are you gonna do with all that? Like, why did you buy all that? Why would you spend money on it? I was very confused. And he he would, he didn't give me any sort of answer. Like, he said words, but it was not an answer. 
Louisa was still feeling uncomfortable and nervous when she accepted Isaac's after-dinner invitation to go hang out at his brother's place. At this point, Louisa was only 18 years old. She'd been homeschooled and led a very sheltered life. And even though she was dating someone and felt weird about going, she didn't feel right about turning down Isaac, who was grieving and needed a friend right now. I think I was excusing everything at that point. Like, it was awkward. I was a little uncomfortable, but I was I think definitely excusing all the behaviors. Like, okay, he's grieving. Who knows what's going on in his head? Like, he's just got to be, like, totally lost in, in so much pain. You know, whatever. Like, he's going through it. So Luisa went with Isaac to his brother's place, which is where he was staying. And they headed down to the basement, which is where he stayed when he stayed with his brother. We lay down on this, like, old bed that he would have been sleeping on that night. And we're just, like, staring up at this old water-spotted ceiling. And I remember making a joke about, like, oh, the stars are so pretty tonight. You know, and we're just staring at these, like, water spots on this old ceiling. And he was like, oh, yeah, it's like ghetto stargazing or something. He called it ghetto stargazing. So we're laying there. He's high as fuck. And we're making jokes like that. And he started to, like, try to, like, move closer to me. And I was like, no, no, no. You know, like, we're not going to cuddle. That's not what this is. Uh, And I started being, like, immediately uncomfortable like lines he was starting to like try to cross some lines and I was unsure of how to like I didn't want to be rude you know I was like this the way I was raised and everything I didn't know how to be like okay that's enough I'm leaving bye you know and just like get out of there I didn't have my own car with me either so I remember just being like "Uh uh-oh what do I do and that's when he kissed me Louisa was not happy about the kiss and had made it clear to Isaac several times that their friendship was of the platonic nature. The kiss was unwelcomed and she had made that known. That's when I, I got really upset. I was really mad because I had told him so many times, like, Isaac, you can't do the, you know, like, what if, what would have happened if we'd been together? You can't do that with me. I've got a boyfriend. You know, he knew all of that. And he still kissed me. I told you, you can't. I have a boyfriend. I'm taken. You know, you can't, you can't touch me like that. You can't. And now looking back on it, I'm like, oh, that's, that's like sexual assault. I didn't see it like that at the time. I just thought, okay, he's really confused. He's lost his wife. He's grieving. He had a thing for me. He's confused. I was still mad, but I wasn't like so angry that I would have, I was like really yelling at him or anything. I was just like, okay, I told you, you can't do that. I have a boyfriend. I need you to take me home now. Isaac agreed to take Louisa home. At first the ride was just plain awkward, but then things got really more uncomfortable. On the way back, it was awkward silence a lot. He was playing music on the radio And the song Pumped Up Kicks by Foster the People came on. And he was like, oh, I've killed people to this song. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, you know, just like you're shooting people. And like, he was just talking so blasé, so blasé. And like, so like it it could have been, it sounded like he was talking about it 
like it was a video game. Like there was no emotion. It wasn't like I've killed people and it was horrible. It was just like, oh, it was kind of fun. It was like a game. If you'll recall from part one, Louisa knew Isaac had a habit of exaggerating, especially when it came to the intensity of things. While sitting in the car, Louisa thought Isaac was acting like his normal hyperbolic self. Or if he was being honest about killing people, he had to be talking about doing so in the context of the military, right? So even though she knew that Isaac hadn't been deployed, it was all Louisa could fathom in the moment when Isaac was talking about this, because any other explanation just didn't make sense. That was the only thing I could think was like, oh my gosh, he's, he's killed people in, in war zones. You know, that's all I thought, because how, well, how else, why else would you have killed anybody? I remember feeling a little bit of fear, like obviously after he was talking about killing people and I'm just sitting there, I'm 18 and I'm alone in the truck with this guy. And I was so thoroughly creeped out. It was really, really unsettling. And then, like I said, at that point, like I'd seen there was something in his eyes that was different. And I just thought it was grief. Louisa was relieved when she was dropped off at home without further incident. She watched Isaac drive away, and it was the last time she ever saw him. A few months later, in December, Louisa was at home with her family when she received some news that changed the trajectory of her life. 19-year-old Isaac had been arrested for the murder of a young man and woman in Georgia. But that wasn't all. He'd also founded and funded a militia, using the money he received from Deirdre's death. Louisa couldn't believe what she was hearing. She had so many questions, her head was spinning. It shattered my perspective of the world, of like everything. It just rocked everything. I could not wrap my head around it. I could not understand how how it could have happened and how Isaac could have been involved. So Isaac started a militia and murdered two people. What happened? How did this happen? So to answer those questions, you all know the drill. We got to go back. After Deirdre died, Isaac was sent to the barracks for single soldiers, an area known for drinking and hooking up. A friend told the New Yorker that Isaac quickly started going crazy. As we know from part one, Isaac liked to party. He was drinking, doing drugs, etc., But now that Isaac was a widow, things really started to escalate. He no longer had to worry about his wife, who protested against his recreational drug use. Oh, and also, he had that $500,000 to blow and just have a good time with. In addition to partying with his fellow soldiers, Isaac started frequenting strip clubs. He ended up dating two dancers, who later said he gave them thousands of dollars to help pay bills. Isaac attended after parties with the dancers as well, and there they'd smoke synthetic marijuana, snort bath salts and cocaine, and take ecstasy. In this party scene, Isaac befriended 25-year-old private named Chris Salmon. They quickly bonded over their distaste for the military. Both men had recently been assigned extra duty for violating the rules. It turns out that Chris had been caught committing travel voucher fraud in Iraq. Isaac had been in trouble off and on for drinking and drugs, But shortly before Deirdre's death, he did something way more serious. He accidentally fired a handgun while trying to unload it. He was given a demerit known as Article 15, 
But since he was already at the lowest rank, he was restricted to the barracks for two weeks and received 45 days of extra duty. Because he had to serve his punishment shortly after Deirdre's death, Isaac was extra angry with the military. He told Chris he was tired of the military's ridicule and restrictions. And it wasn't long before Isaac moved in with Chris and Chris's pregnant wife, Heather. She, too, had become disenchanted with the military, as she'd recently been discharged for drug abuse. So while they were all living together, Chris and Isaac continued discussing their distaste for the government, and Heather joined in on these conversations as well. But then one night, Isaac escalated yet again, and he started talking about wanting to get back at the military now. Chris thought this was a great idea, and Isaac started putting together what would become his militia. Isaac started scheming and befriending other disgruntled soldiers. According to The New Yorker, he targeted those who were in trouble or emotionally vulnerable. Who better to talk to about your hate for the military than the men who had been punished by the military? All these guys were like bottom of the totem pole, scraping, scraping you know, gum off the sidewalk in the military. They were all dissatisfied, and that's how they all kind of clumped together with like this, you know, unifying hatred of their position in the military. So most of these soldiers had recently gotten in trouble, usually based on a bad decision they'd made, and were now angry with the military for punishing them. But the soldiers were bitter about other things as well, more serious and traumatizing things. One soldier later told The New Yorker, We've been fighting a war for over 10 years with no political gain. I have friends who went to Iraq and Afghanistan who have been killed or wounded by roadside bombs and terrorists blowing themselves up and nothing has changed. These men were the perfect targets for Isaac. And during all of this craziness, Isaac was keeping in touch with her first degree, Louisa. She had absolutely no idea that her former secret boyfriend was in the midst of creating his own militia. Isaac ended up befriending numerous men, but to make things less confusing, we'll only be focusing on the ones closest to Isaac and involved in the, you know, main part of the story. Besides Chris Salmon, there was 19-year-old private Michael Rourke, who'd been in trouble for violations like fighting and reckless driving. Rourke was mostly disgruntled because he really wanted to go to Iraq. He'd enlisted to serve his country after all. But instead, he was kept home, kept on base at Fort Stewart. He was washing ditches and watching an ever-revolving door of soldiers going off to war while he was forced to stay back. Then there was 26-year-old Private First Class Michael Burnett. Isaac had latched onto Burnett after he received an Article 15 for an unregistered gun. They spent time together and talked about how they wanted to overthrow the government. He was obviously a good fit for Isaac's group. The other soldier closest to Isaac was 25-year-old Sergeant Anthony Peden. He'd served as a sniper in Iraq and had recently returned from his third tour with major PTSD. He was also suffering from multiple brain injuries after surviving explosions. He'd seen his friends die and he'd killed multiple men. When he was back in the States, he used heroin to numb the pain. Isaac kept Peden stocked up with heroin and Peden trained the other group members on different shooting techniques. He also taught Isaac how to build bombs with PVC pipes, nails, and gunpowder. Isaac continued chatting up disgruntled soldiers. And at this point, they were just a group of bitter men, not really anything more. But that all changed when Isaac showed Burnett an article he'd found in a gaming magazine. It was all about a soon-to-be-released video game called Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Patriots. 
Isaac became fixated on this article. Why? Well, the New Yorker reported that it served as kind of a manifesto for him. It was the group's foundation and inspiration for everything, their beliefs, the crimes they wanted to commit, etc. Because the group's entire belief system was based on the game, we want to explain its premise really quick so you can get an idea. The game focuses on an elite counter-terrorist unit, Team Rainbow, who fights a domestic militia made up of veterans, the True Patriots. According to the Seattle Times, the True Patriots committed acts of terror to restore its interpretation of American values. They did this by beheading corporate America and overthrowing the government. It was the stuff that disenchanted soldiers dreamed of. Chris told Isaac that the leader of the True Patriots was identical to how he envisioned Isaac. Chris said the group could create their own militia, just like the True Patriots. Isaac should be the leader, of course. According to Isaac, this is when the soldiers stopped thinking of themselves as a group and started thinking of themselves as a militia. They were now known as fear, forever enduring, always ready. Burnett told the New Yorker that the militia's main gripe was that the government failed the people. They wanted to take things out of the politicians' hands and give them back to everyday people. We weren't out to change the government. We were out to destroy it, he said. I believe most Americans share my beliefs. They're just afraid to show it. The only way to overcome all fear is to become something everyone else fears. Isaac had a vision for his militia. There would be no ranks. Instead, they'd be set up like a bike club, a community, if you will. There were the key members of the militia, Isaac, Chris Salmon, Michael Burnett, Michael Rourke, and Anthony Peden. They were known as the family because, of course, they were. There was also an elite platoon for Isaac's best recruits. This platoon was known as 666, pronounced triple six. Only the men involved in triple six were allowed to know what the platoon did. The only thing they were allowed to know about triple six was that it was an honored platoon to be a part of. For the militia as a whole, Isaac created an emblem that combined an overlapping alpha and omega to look like an anarchy symbol. Isaac and the militia members engraved the emblem on their weapons and got it tattooed on their bodies. Isaac and his friends were on their way to becoming just like the true patriots. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, 
Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Following the death of his wife, Deirdre, 19-year-old Isaac Agigi started a militia within the army while stationed at Fort Stewart in Georgia. Throughout the summer and into the fall of 2011, Isaac continued recruiting new members through a process he referred to as the awakening. Basically, he would show the Rainbow Six article to a potential recruit, engage the reaction. Super uh, complex and well thought out. This guy kills me. Um, So if they said something like, wow, I really love those true patriot guys. They're the best. Then Isaac would let them know about fear. If the person responded with, oh, my God, those true patriot guys are really bad. How can anyone like them? Then Isaac would move on to the next person. No, this wasn't a good recruit for him. And Isaac took good care of his recruits. He implemented head check where the men would talk through their disagreements, share their fears and more. One soldier said, if we were having an emotional problem, we'd sit down and talk about it. That's what we were all there for. You have a problem. We'll fix it. Isaac provided the men with endless alcohol, drugs, and strip club trips. In less than two months, he bought up to $15,000 worth of cocaine, weed, and ecstasy. In one night alone, he spent sixteen grand at the strip club. Isaac also purchased weapons. A lot of weapons. At least $87,000 worth. When he went back to Washington and told Louisa about all the weapons he'd purchased, he wasn't lying. He'd gone to High Mountain Hunting Supply, where his friend Matt worked, and spent $32,000 on 14 guns and other military hardware. So in that time frame of coming back here, so he went to a gun store in Wenatchee, and he spent tens of thousands of dollars on guns and weapons and ammunition and gear. And he was very proud of it. Like I said, with the money from Deirdre's death, he was spending it like I've never seen someone spend money left and right. Money did not matter. Tens of thousands of dollars in guns and weapons. Like, what the fuck do you need that many guns for? This is crazy. He told me about all the guns and he said that he had them in a storage locker 
in Wenatchee, like in the area. And he asked if I wanted to see them. I said, I'm all right. Thanks. So it turns out Luisa wasn't the only person in Isaac's life to be troubled by his stockpiling of weapons. A relative of his actually reported Isaac's purchase to the local police, who then contacted the FBI and the army. So after an investigation, the FBI found that everything Isaac was doing was actually completely legal. However, they felt that he posed a substantial risk of committing a violent act against members of the public. The FBI told the army about their findings, and Isaac was cleared. He continued stockpiling weapons. I can't believe people are allowed to do this. Through the end of November, he spent $38,000 on additional weapons from the store his friend worked at. Isaac's dreams for the militia continued to expand. He wanted to buy 90 acres in Washington state and build a whole entire compound there. Isaac spoke openly about his plans around the base, and he felt very powerful. He later told The New Yorker about his thought process at the time. He said, I have a Minuteman militia that's being built. I have guns. I have money. I'm the fucking boss. You don't want to fuck with me. I'm nuts. I'm the nicest murderer you'll ever meet. At this time, Isaac was still using drugs. He was moving on to harder ones and was subsequently becoming more aggressive. Isaac claimed to suffer from schizophrenia, which left him with multiple personalities. And the most prominent one was Loki, named after the Norse god of mischief. Isaac's real personality was the good and Loki was the bad. He's the one who bought all the guns and the drugs, kind of like a yin and yang. Militia member Adam Dearman later told The New Yorker, Isaac wouldn't make sense when he was Loki. He would talk crazy. Dearman believes Loki is the person Isaac wants to be on the outside, but knows he can't because it's not socially acceptable to be a sociopath. Salmon's wife Heather said Isaac told people that Loki would just come out and he would have no idea when it happened. But now Dearman thinks it was a mind game. Eventually, Isaac decided to split the militia into two cells, a white one and a black one. The two cells represented his two personalities, Isaac and Loki, a.k.a. the good and the bad. Members of the white cell would be in charge of carrying out legit operations, such as providing medical care to the militia. Members of the black cell would be in charge of all of the illegal operations, which ranged from stealing guns to throw on the stockpile to assassinating President Obama to overthrowing the entire government. A lot is going on over there. Isaac had a lot of big plans for the black cell as well. He wanted them to travel to Washington state and bomb a dam or poison the apple crop in order to sow economic rest. Isaac also planned to create an active shooter situation in order to take control of Fort Stewart. His plan involved using the sewer system as part of a sniper assault. To see how plausible his plan really was, Isaac bribed a commander to let him go into the base to check things out, which is terrifying. Because Isaac spoke openly about his plans, the military police caught wind of at least one plan. Isaac and three other soldiers were going to kill local drug dealers. The army investigated Isaac for conspiracy to commit murder, and he admitted to everything, but was never charged. None of those things we just talked about were the most important plan for Isaac. Now, his number one goal was to overthrow the government and give the country back to the people. He wanted to do this on July 17th, 2031 which is the 20th anniversary of Deirdre's death. This whole time, Isaac had been acting like a grieving husband. He cried to his friends a lot about how much he missed Deirdre and so badly wished he could spend time with her and baby Calvin. So as the drug use increased, so did the paranoia. By the fall, members of the militia were suspicious of each other 
and feared they'd be ratted out or screwed over. And as it turns out, they had a good reason to worry. Heather Salmon, Chris's wife, had been put in charge of Fear's finances. In November of that year, she found that someone had stolen between $10,000 and $30,000. So Isaac was irate and basically decided that whoever stole this money was a traitor to their militia. And they worked to figure out who it was. They eventually conducted an investigation of sorts and in the process determined that a member of the family, Michael Rourke, had rented a storage locker. So what did he need a storage locker for? They wondered. With that information, Isaac immediately assumed Rourke was stealing weapons in addition to money and storing these weapons in this storage locker. Isaac, again, was irate. He was livid. This was a close and trusted member of his family and of his militia, and he had betrayed him. In late November, Isaac informed the militia that Rourke had to die. Isaac later told the New Yorker that because Rourke couldn't be trusted to be silent about the operations of the group, it was decided by the group as a whole that he would need to be executed. He had robbed him. He was a thief. He couldn't be trusted and he knew too much and he was going to be out. He was going to be out from under Isaac, out from under any control, a loose cannon in the wind, and he couldn't be trusted. So that's why they needed to deal with him. That was Isaac's reasoning. Then Isaac remembered that Rourke had a girlfriend, Tiffany York. They'd only been together for a few months, but Isaac was convinced he told her everything. And she was going to have to die as well. Who knows what she knew? Who knows what he actually told her? But it did not matter. It didn't matter one bit. Isaac was on a freaking high, like, power trip, wanting to feel, like, the mighty, I think, wanting to feel like he had all this power and control. And if you wronged him, then it, you know, he could sentence you to death. And that's what he did. And she was, I, you know, just this innocent person, wrong place, wrong time. And he decided that they both had to die. On December 2nd, which unfortunately happens to be on my birthday, a few days after Isaac decided Rourke in New York had to die, Rourke was discharged from the army for misconduct. So now he was a guy without a job. Rourke took York, his girlfriend, on a vacation to Florida. So they were back in Georgia on the 5th. That same day, Rourke went over to the Chris Salmon household. So after that visit, he went back home. Heather noticed that Rourke had left his phone behind and she went through it. And in his phone, she found text message describing how Rourke was moving back to Washington State. And York, his girlfriend, was going to move back to California. So in Heather's eyes, all these texts and their plans to leave proved that Rourke had definitely stolen the money and weapons. And they were planning to flee the area, both of them. At around 9 p.m. that same evening, Burnett, Peden, and Isaac gathered at the Salmon House to discuss what Heather had found. Isaac told them, tonight's the night. We're going to kill Rourke and his girlfriend. Burnett objected, but was overruled. The group then invited Rourke and York to go out for some impromptu night shooting. The couple agreed and drove separately to a rural area near Morgan Lake. Burnett, Peden, Chris Salmon, and Isaac hopped in a Jeep to meet up with them there. During the drive, Salmon was assigned to kill Rourke, while Burnett was supposed to kill York. Isaac was testing Burnett since he seemed hesitant about the whole situation. That was a quote. Burnett failed the test when he said he wouldn't kill anyone. Things got pretty tense in the car. Then Peden piped up and said he'd do it. He'd kill York. As they pulled up to the meeting point, Isaac handed out latex gloves to everyone. 
Once they were parked, all four men got out of the Jeep. Peden walked up to the passenger side of Rourke's car. York, his girlfriend, opened the door, and just immediately, Peden shot her in the head with a pistol. He checked to make sure she was dead, felt for a pulse, and then he shot her again. It's so cold and callous. It's like the most shocking part of this story is just how how cut and dry and business they were about this. And it's just really sad that she got roped into this. Salmon pointed a gun at Rourke and ordered him out of the car and onto his knees. Isaac interrogated Rourke about the storage locker he had rented and the stolen money. Rourke admitted to stealing the weapons and the money, but he said that he had spent it all already. He also gave him the location and combination to the locker. Salmon then shot Rourke in the back of the head. Then Peden told Salmon to quote-unquote double tap, so Salmon shot Rourke in the head again. All four men went back to the Jeep, but before they got in, they turned their shirts inside out and talked about how what they'd just done felt amazing, quote. They couldn't believe they'd actually gone through with it. Then they hopped in the Jeep and took off. They just left the scene. They just walked away from it. They didn't try to hide it. They didn't try to clean up. They just drove away. It's just horrifying. Those are somebody's children. You know, those are brothers and sisters and friends. And they were just executed so coldly and left there. The men then went back to the Salmon household, took off their clothes, and placed them in a black garbage bag. Then they went over their alibis in case the police came knocking. Isaac said they needed to stick together no matter what, and they shouldn't do anything out of the ordinary. They needed to avoid suspicion at all costs. Before parting, they planned a barbecue for the next day to be held at Peden's place because he lived off base. The next day at the barbecue, they burned their clothes, shoes, spent shell casings, and Rourke's cell phone. While the militiamen were busy barbecuing, some fishermen found Rourke and York's bodies right where they left them. Their families were in complete shock. Both were still teenagers. Rourke was 19 and York was only 17. She was still in high school. Both were massacred. And for what? It was a devastating loss. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. On December 6, 2011, the bodies of 19-year-old Michael Rourke and his 17-year-old girlfriend, Tiffany York, were discovered near Morgan Lake. Authorities have been pretty tight-lipped on what led them to tie Rourke and York's murders to the Fear Militia. All we know is that on December 7th, the day after the bodies were found, GBI agents spoke with Isaac. He stuck to the alibi that he and the others had concocted. On the 5th, he got off duty at 3 p.m., went to the Salmon House, 
drank a little while while watching movies with Pete and Burnett and the Salmons. Isaac said he hadn't even spoken to Rourke in a week. When investigators spoke with the others, they all told really similar stories. But the agents didn't believe a word that they said. At this point, the Army informed the GBI that Isaac and three other soldiers had been investigated for conspiring to murder local drug dealers. Then the FBI told the GBI about the weapons Isaac had been stockpiling. Rourke's storage locker was searched. Inside was explosives, a pipe, smokeless black powder, wires, and weapons engraved with the fear emblem. Agents now knew they had a domestic terrorist group on their hands. And while all of this was going on, Isaac was very paranoid that the police were going to arrest them at any moment. And he reminded his followers to stay strong, stick together, and stick to their stories. On December 10th, military police in full body armor arrested Isaac, Burnett, the Salmons, and Peden. Once they were at the station, any agreement that they had about sticking together went completely out the door. The only people who stuck to their stories were the Salmons. Peden was the first to talk. He told police everything and said that he was scared that Isaac would kill him or his son if he went to authorities about what was going on. Burnett was next, and he also gave a full confession. The authorities saved the ringleader for last. After speaking to all the other participants, they went to interview Isaac. They told him that everyone was turning on him, so he better tell the truth. He finally gave in and told them a mostly true story, except for admitting to being the mastermind. Isaac made it seem like Peden was the boss who pushed them to kill Rourke and York to, quote, tie up loose ends. So much for Isaac's encouraging words about sticking together. Way to have that conviction. Salmon and Peden were charged with malice murder, while Burnett and Isaac were charged with being party to a murder. But authorities weren't done with Isaac yet. And we haven't revealed this yet. But the entire time Isaac was running his militia, he was under a cloud of suspicion relating to the death of his late wife, Deirdre. And now that Rourke and York were dead, authorities were more motivated than ever to link Isaac to his wife's suspicious death. When Louisa heard the news, she was blown away. Her friend had killed numerous people and possibly his pregnant wife. Her friend was a monster. That was a huge shock of what the fuck, because he... You know, everything he was saying out loud at the time was like, he was so excited for this baby and they were going to make things work. And then, you know, he was devastated after the death. And and then every, all of his actions since her death until he visited and kissed me, I explained all of those actions away as, you know, a grieving husband who's lost his wife, his pregnant wife. And then to hear... He was, you know, suspected of doing it. It just rocked everything. And it changed the way I saw all of those interactions. And everything he had said and done totally flopped. So from July 17th, 2011 and on, Isaac acted like a grieving husband. Louisa thought he was being genuine, and so did everyone else. So what happened to Deirdre? To get into that, let's rewind back to July of 2011. So in July of 2011, Deirdre was around six months pregnant. She and Isaac were working on their marriage, and things seemed to be looking up. On July 4th, they went to the Zac Brown Band concert, and Deirdre told Isaac's friend that she thought she and Isaac were getting back together soon. 
But the truth is, Isaac wasn't really trying to work on things with his pregnant wife. Instead, he was dating two women at Fort Stewart and constantly complaining about Deirdre, saying things like, I'm better off without her. Isaac had also convinced himself that baby Calvin wasn't his. He always thought Deirdre was cheating on him, so it only made sense to him that the baby wasn't his. This guy was projecting hardcore because he was the only one that was being unfaithful in this relationship. And he was wrong. Postmortem tests proved, actually, that the baby was his. In two days before Deirdre's death, Isaac randomly left town with his friend Mike. They went to South Carolina. Deirdre was angry and texted him, why do you keep doing this to me? If you take a weekend away, then just tell me. That quote was, then fucking tell me, but I paraphrased. So remember, Deirdre was like six months pregnant and her husband's leaving for weekends away without even giving her the respect of a heads up. So in response to Deirdre's anger, Isaac promised he'd turn around and come back home right away, but he didn't. Instead, he doubled down. He went to her friend's place and played beer pong. With that, she called her dad, completely upset. He later told the New Yorker, she finally realized that she and her baby weren't safe staying with Isaac, and she decided to leave, but she never got the chance. Eventually, Isaac stopped playing beer pong and went back to the apartment that he shared with Deirdre. But on the way home, he stopped at a store and purchased a bottle of potassium iodide. And this purchase is really, really weird, because why would he need a bottle of potassium iodide in the first place? It's used to treat radiation exposure, so like, what would be the reason that he would need that? Our writer asked her friend that's a doctor, and she didn't even know what it was for and had to look it up. Our writer also asked a friend who's a pharmacy tech, and she has a, our writer has a lot of connections that are really helpful, by the way. Shout out to Haley. <laughs> I know. The pharmacy tech also had never heard of this. So it's a really weird purchase that is very unknown to the most of the population. And there's more to talk about this potassium iodide that we're going to get into in a little bit. As we talked about previously, it was July 17th when six months pregnant Deirdre tragically passed away at the young age of 24. And if you'll recall, Isaac told everyone that on the day of Deirdre's death, he was taking a nap in the bedroom when he woke up to the sound of the phone ringing. That's when he went to the living room and found an unresponsive Deirdre lying on the couch. Remember, he called 911 and attempts to resuscitate her and the baby she was pregnant with were unsuccessful. And after that, Isaac told people that she died of a blood clot related to her injury. And that was sort of the story he stuck with. But now that was all unraveling. Isaac had been lying to them, all of them, all along. The truth was that the medical examiner hadn't been able to determine Deirdre's cause of death. There were no signs of a blood clot. Pregnancy health complications had been ruled out. The toxicology report was clear. And she wasn't suffering from any illnesses. However, there were around 20 marks and bruises on her body, wrists, arms, head, back, and on the inside of her mouth. But none of the marks or bruises suggested any fatal injuries. But Isaac had an explanation for these bruises. On the day of Deirdre's death, they had sex, very kinky sex, he alleged. And he told authorities that Deirdre liked being handcuffed. And her favorite thing was to lay on her back with her hands bound behind her. According to him, when she was bound, she liked it when Isaac caused her pain. Isaac's story sort of checked out, at least on the surface. When investigators had gone over the crime scene, they located evidence of a sexy evening in the bedroom. Handcuffs, Karma Sutra cards with sexual positions, a book on orgasms, and a sex toy, and some lube. But we know that Deirdre was reluctant to partake in this, and it, it seems like Isaac's lying. 
There's one more thing of note the investigators found. That bottle of potassium iodide Isaac purchased right before Deirdre died. Around three-fourths of the contents were missing. Why is this significant? Well, Deirdre was allergic to iodine. It seems likely that Isaac thought he was purchasing iodine when he went to the store, but accidentally purchased iodide. He may have given Deirdre the potassium iodide thinking it would kill her, but it didn't do anything because she wasn't allergic to it. Our writer's doctor friend said, many people are allergic to iodine. So knowing she was allergic, getting the pill form of iodine would probably be the easiest way to purchase it so it could be crushed and hidden in food or drink. The medical examiner had even looked for signs of an allergic reaction since investigators knew Isaac had purchased the potassium iodide prior to Deirdre's death. But there were no signs of a reaction. And that's because she wasn't allergic to iodide. The medical examiner was dumbfounded. He could not figure out how this young and healthy woman died. All he knew was that Isaac's story about finding Deirdre unresponsive on the couch after having kinky sex did not seem likely. Louisa thought the same when she heard all of the information. How could she just go lay down to take a nap and then he like conveniently walks in and finds her dead, unresponsive? Like how convenient? And then he gets all this money? Fuck no. Like that does not work. That does not add up. The medical examiner and investigators were for sure suspicious of Isaac, but with no clear cause of death and only circumstantial evidence, the military police didn't feel comfortable pressing charges. Not yet, at least. So they didn't close the case or rule that Deirdre died from a blood clot like Isaac had told people. In fact, they were actually still investigating Deirdre's death in December of 2011 when Rourke and York were killed. But here's the kicker. Even though Deirdre's death was still being investigated, Isaac had been able to cash in on our $500,000 life insurance policies, which is what led him to start the militia. Once again, Isaac had seemingly gotten away with something very egregious. So after Rourke and York were killed, a civilian medical examiner looked over Deirdre's original autopsy report and photos. And this examiner believed that Deirdre's wrists were handcuffed behind her back, just like Isaac said. Whether she was in these cuffs willingly or not, Whatever happened to her next was not consensual. While she was bound, Deirdre struggled violently against the handcuffs, and that's because she was being suffocated. Deirdre didn't die from a blood clot. She died from asphyxiation, most likely by a specific kind of chokehold taught to army soldiers, which doesn't leave evidence of choking behind. Now, the medical examiner couldn't be certain that a chokehold was what caused Deirdre's death. He could only tell with certainty that she'd been suffocated. The chokehold is definitely an accepted theory among prosecutors. However, there is another possibility also accepted among prosecutors. Remember Michael Schaefer, the man Isaac was supposed to go to South Carolina with right before Deirdre suddenly died? Well, he later testified that after Deirdre died, Isaac told him that he killed her during sex. After he incapacitated her with the handcuffs, he put a plastic bag over her head and suffocated her to death. Deirdre's manner of death was officially ruled a homicide, and Isaac was charged. He pleaded not guilty. When the news came out that Isaac had killed his wife, in addition to starting a militia and murdering two other people, the media was in an absolute frenzy. The whole story blew up so big in our area because it's like this tiny town where nothing happens. Nothing ever happens. And here's like this quiet, conservative Christian family with homeschooled kids from Kashmir. Like nothing exciting has ever happened. 
And now this guy from Kashmir has murdered people. The media attention, in addition to their grief and trauma, was really hard on the Agigi family. The family was torn apart. I mean, it was devastating. They had news vans come from like Seattle and Spokane and stuff like park outside their house for so long. I felt so bad for for the family, for his parents. I mean, they were being like accosted just trying to like get in their car to go to work. You know, they like shut down. They could not function. They couldn't leave their house. It was absolutely horrible. I felt like the invasion of the news vans into their private life because of what Isaac had done all the way across the country. You know, it was really messed up. I felt horrible for them. And they, I couldn't even imagine like what they were going through, how they could try to understand what their son or their brother had done. The media frenzy continued as Isaac and his militiamen were going through the court system. Burnett pleaded guilty to two counts of voluntary manslaughter, two counts of possessing a firearm, and four counts of gang participation. And he agreed to testify against his co-defendants and was later sentenced to eight years in prison plus 40 years of probation. He was released in December of 2019. With Burnett willing to testify against him, Isaac ended up pleading guilty to two counts of gang participation and two counts of murder. He avoided the death penalty and was sentenced to life without parole. But as part of the deal, he had to testify against any remaining co-defendants. And because Chris Salmon still wasn't cooperating with authorities, the judge in Isaac's case actually asked Salmon to attend Isaac's hearing to witness the fact that Isaac was willing to testify against him. And remember, this is the same Isaac that was saying we all got to stick together with our statements. So it was at that moment that Salmon finally realized that Isaac was a manipulative rat. Chris Salmon pleaded guilty to two counts of murder, two counts of gang participation, and one count of making a false statement. He was sentenced to life without parole. Salmon's wife, Heather, took a deal where she pleaded guilty to two counts of voluntary manslaughter and two counts of gang participation. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison with 10 years of probation. Her maximum possible release is June of 2032. And lastly, Peden pleaded guilty to two counts of murder and two counts of gang participation. He was sentenced to life without parole. In March 2014, after a four-day court-martial, Isaac was convicted of murdering Deirdre and causing the death of an unborn child. He was sentenced to life in prison. Following the hearing, Isaac's mother, Annette, told the media, I don't know what happened to my son. I am angry. I am disappointed. I am broken beyond broken. But I can't stop loving my kid. You know, I think with their, with the religious, you know, side of things, there's, you know, forgiveness and that sticking, you know, definitely sticking with him, you know, not condoning anything by any means, you know, being completely shattered by it, but still loving him as their son. And just, I think they just want to know why, like, and how, but I know that, you know, they, they went to Georgia, they, they visited him in, in prison. I don't know, like these days, how often, if at all, they do get to Georgia to visit. <laughs> but I think that they did, you know, try to support him without condoning anything. So throughout this entire ordeal, Louisa had been connected to Isaac. In the beginning, when he was growing up, they spent all their time together. And through 
this entire process where he was building this militia, when he had killed Deirdre, they had been in touch, they had been texting, and he came home and visited. So it's no surprise that in the end, following his conviction and when the truth about this person was revealed to her, she was left feeling absolutely traumatized. It's still like I can't, I still can't wrap my mind around it. You know, it's been like 11 years. I'm 29 years old. I, I can't understand it. And it's really bothered me a long time. I, I really like, I shut this stuff up real tight in a box and like shoved it to the back of my brain for a long time. And then, you know, didn't think about it for a really long time, but then it came out. I remembered it all. And I've just been, I've, how can I process this? How can I make sense of this? And honestly, that was one of the deciding factors in me emailing the first degree and just saying, like, I want to tell this story because maybe it'll help in processing what the hell happened. Because it doesn't make sense to me. I can't understand it. And I really want some peace personally. And if that's how much it affected me, I can't begin to imagine how it affected his immediate family and then obviously the family of his victims. Louisa was so affected by Isaac that she turned to alcohol to numb the pain. It helped her bury everything even deeper. I got married and our relationship, my husband and I, you know, our alcohol destroyed our marriage and it was really ugly. And so I was just like, I was not processing anything. I was so many things that I was just running from and a lot of trauma upon trauma upon trauma and just compounding by not stopping like one of the biggest causes of continuation that alcohol was causing for me. In 2020, Louisa got sober, and that's when she started being able to finally process everything she'd been through. The fact that her childhood romance was a murderer, the fact that he'd already been a murderer when he tried to kiss her against her will, it was a lot to deal with. She still hasn't processed everything, but now Louisa can look back at the time she spent with Isaac and realize that she was naive. She didn't know what red flags were. And she knows now that red flags are very real and that people are capable of a lot more than you expect. I just see people are so much more complicated than I ever would have thought when I was a kid. And I thought I was so smart. I thought I knew everything. Of course, I was the most sheltered, naive kid out there. You know, I didn't know shit. So... It's just, it's so sad. I just, I I don't know how the families of the victims can begin to understand what happened. And if I can't even, and if this was just one of the things that I was running from in my life and it's caused this much turmoil for me, I just, I don't know how the families can go through it. All right. Well, a huge, huge thank you to Louisa for sharing her story. If you are listening and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group, make sure to subscribe to our Patreon for a lot of extra bonus content and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. And shout out to the reporting by Nadia Labby with the New Yorker. 
Her piece on this topic was incredibly detailed. We could not have done this episode without her. We leaned on her article for a ton of information. So shout out to your good work. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that close. Happy Happy parchment day. Parchment paper day. Womp womp. (laughs) Writing by Haley Gray, sources for this episode are The New Yorker, CBS News, Star Tribune, Associated Press, LA Times, WTOC, Pacific Daily News, The Guardian, Times Tribune, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Atlanta Constitution, as always, our first three guests, as always, our largest source, and shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, and Caitlin Cleveland for your amazing producing skills. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com podcast25.